nothing we can do about the collective stupidity of government other than figure out how to exploit it. This is an economy of one. Your beacon guiding you through the turbulent waters of the political economy. The market no longer is the invisible hand of mutual gain, but the choking grip of political self-interest. Liberty is not given. It must be taken. Let's take it back together today. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An economy of one with Gary Rathman, CEO of Private Wealth Consultants and your free market voice of the U.S. Greetings and welcome again to an economy of one. I am your host, Gary Rathman. Our website, economyofone.com, an economy of one. Dot com as is our Facebook. We got a video on Facebook that you have to see. It's called Superheroes, and it talks about the uh, athletes of the uh, Paralympics. Now, I'm not too excited about the Olympics coming up next month just because of all the negative stuff coming out of Rio. I think it's going to be less than stellar. Uh, they banned the, the Russian team or a major part of it from participating. And I just think that I'm not going to enjoy it, so I'm probably not going to watch it. I don't need all the backstories and that kind of stuff. But this video, talking about the Paralympics, uh, it's 3 minutes and 14 seconds or something like that. So it won't take a lot of your time. But you got to take a look at this. If you haven't seen this, this is terrific terrific it's not sappy it doesn't pull at your heartstrings it just shows you quality people overcoming some advantages that or disadvantages that they have that are advantages to you and me it's brilliant it really is i don't know who produced it but uh you got to take a look at that so that's on our facebook page economy of one on facebook an economy of one now you sick of politics yet I am, and this is the kickoff. This week was the Democratic National Convention, and boring as heck. And, of course, the media is all over it. On both sides, I mean, the media is sappy. I mean, some of these people can do no wrong. Everything's peachy. Trump is Satan incarnate, of course. And it's interesting to, I don't know, read the thoughts of some of the major media because... It's not so much that the politicians lie. It's not so much even that the media lies. It's that they think they can lie and will believe it. And that's what gets me is the thought that we are stupid, that we don't know what the facts or the truth is, and they can tell us anything and we'll just eat that like oatmeal. And it's just... A sad state. That being said, I don't want to spend a lot of time on the Democratic National Convention today, but one thing did strike me, and that was a talk by New Jersey Senator Cory Booker. And he essentially said there's no such thing as a declaration of independence, it was a declaration of interdependence. And he poo-pooed the notion that America was built on rugged individualism and that if were it not for the government, nothing would be happening in this country. Now, to quote him, 
He said, I respect and value the ideals of rugged individualism and self-reliance. Ah, yeah, you do. But rugged individualism didn't defeat the British. It didn't get us to the moon, didn't build our nation's highways. Rugged individualism didn't map the human genome. We did that together. We are not called to be a nation of tolerance. We are called to be a nation of love. I don't know where he got that one. But going back to defeating the British, going back to putting us on the moon, going back to the nation's highways, all of that was rugged individualism. Granted, no individual built the Hoover Dam, no individual built our interstate road system, but it was being built by the states. It's just the federal government took it over, but more than that, it was the individual, some individual, who figured out how to do it. Did they get paid by the government? Maybe. But they would have figured out anyway. Now he goes on to say, we have a presidential nominee in Hillary Clinton who knows that in a time of stunningly wide disparities of wealth in our nation, America's greatness must not be measured by how many millionaires and billionaires we have, but by how few people we have living in poverty. In other words, bring everybody down to the same level. He misses the point that millionaires hire people. And the more millionaires you have, the more people they hire, the more businesses they create, the more product they create. He goes on to say, she knows that debt-free college is not a gift. It's not charity. It's an investment. It represents the best of our values, the best of our history, the best of our party. Well, I'll agree with him partially. It probably represents the best of his party, which isn't saying a whole lot. But that does not represent the best of our values. Giving something away, you give something away, people have very little appreciation for it, especially when you're paying for it by stealing money from those same millionaires and billionaires. If we had no millionaires and billionaires in this country, we wouldn't have anything. It's very important that people understand how wealth is created and what contributions people make. That's like flying to the top of Mount Everest in a helicopter and taking credit for the climb because you made it to the top. These politicians, they don't know at all. On either party, by the way, these politicians don't know what it takes to create anything. They've never created a job, they've never created a product, never had to make payroll, never done any of that. They've never created anything. He misses the point totally about rugged individualism. Rugged individualism and self-reliance is what America is all about. It's what liberty is all about. Liberty. I mean, think about that. Liberty is individualism. If you don't have the individual, you don't have liberty. This is what, what America was built on. 
States were responsible for all the road building, other transportation projects like the Erie Canal were built by rugged individuals. Now, that being said, every time somebody mentions the Erie Canal, I have to remember a story. Now, many, many years ago, shortly after my father passed away, I came across a relative in Boston. And this guy was researching the Rathbun history. And according to him, and that's my sole resource of information here, so if you have contrary information, let me know. But anyway, according to him and his research, the Rathbuns came to America in 1792. John and Martha came over from England, originally from Germany. And we were very entrepreneurial. In fact, we helped finance part of the Erie Canal. So my family history was part of that rugged individualism, part of that self-reliance, part of that entrepreneurial spirit that built this country and continues to build this country. And uh, I'm very proud of that. Now, once again, my sole reference is a relative in Boston that is researching the Rathbun name. And we were very entrepreneurial. I mean, we, we owned uh, uh, hotels and saloons and all kinds of businesses and real estate in uh, upstate New York. Moved west, heavily into Michigan. And it wasn't until the late 1800s that apparently the felony gene kicked in in the Rathbun gene pool. And we had some very colorful relatives, to say the least. But back to the point, most of the towns, most of the villages, most of the municipalities were founded by individuals. There was a point when all the universities in this country were founded by individuals. All of the charities, museums, everything founded by individuals. Don't tell me we weren't built on rugged individualism and self-reliance. Don't tell me that that isn't our value system. That is our heritage. That is the characteristics that we need today. We need individualists. We do not need a collective. Understand that these liberals, the politicians... They want a collective. They just don't want to be part of a collective. They want to dictate to the collective what we do. They want to control every aspect of our lives. Every aspect. We've seen it. Control how much sugar we take in, how much salt we take in, how much we we weigh, what our, our uh, health condition is, how many fruits we eat. I mean, look at what this latest administration has done to your personal liberty. We are seeing a tipping point. Why else would someone like Donald Trump rise to the level he has in politics when he's had no connection to politics in the past? People are sick of these people. Sick of these politicians, sick of these bureaucrats controlling, trying to control every single aspect of your life. 
this is what this election is about, is self-reliance and individual people. That rugged individualism. When you think of America, you think of one word outside this country. People think of one word, cowboy. The American cowboy is all but extinct. But the spirit is still there. It's in our genes. It's who we are. And I'm sick of these people trying to rewrite history, trying to take that away from us, trying to tell us it's a bad aspect of our character. It is the best aspect of our character. Coming up next, Ed Morrissey, author of the new book, Going Red, the two million voters who elect the next president and how conservatives can win them. We'll talk to him next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Ed Morrissey. He's a political columnist. Uh, his writings can be found at his blog, Captain's Quarters, and on hotair.com, where he blogs and hosts a talk show. He's a columnist for the week and the Fiscal Times, and most recently wrote a book called Going Red, the two million voters who elect the next president and how conservatives can win them. Ed, welcome to An Economy of One. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate this. A real treat for me. Your publisher sent me a copy of your book a couple of weeks ago. Very interesting. It raised a lot of points for me, but essentially the subtitle, Two Million Voters, that's pretty accurate according to your research. You're going to elect the next president, right? Yeah, to the two million voters who can really make the decision one way or the other. Um, and the reason why, and thank, by the way, thank you very much, and I'm, I, I hope you enjoyed the book. I did. Uh, the reason that we have that number is because that's the number of voters who are in these seven counties, uh, these seven swing counties and these uh, seven swing states who, who can make or break the election by going Republican or Democrat. And it's really interesting to see these, um, these counties and how they play out, how they're different, how they're similar, and, and how they reflect the challenges that Republicans and conservatives face in expanding the reach of the party. You know, it's been said for a long time that Ohio, which is where we're based, you can't have the presidency without Ohio. And in reading your book, it's not really Ohio as much as Hamilton County, Cincinnati. Yeah. Yeah, the, the Cincinnati area used to be more Republican than, than the rest of the state, and Ohio is a very Republican state, but things have changed. Uh, there's been a lot of economic changes. It's the one county, actually, Hamilton County is really interesting. It's the one county where there was a net population loss of all the seven counties that I, I profile in this book. It's the only one with a net population loss, significant population loss, too. Mm -hmm. It was uh, 12% over uh, the last uh, 44 years. It's uh, city of Cincinnati, it's 44% over the last 40 or so years, and so that creates challenges all of, all on its own. A lot of Republican voters, traditionally Republican voters, move to the neighboring counties, Butler County, Warren County. Um, and um, so what's uh, left in Cincinnati are people who just weren't economically mobile enough to move out or who are so economically established that they, they didn't need to move out. And it, it creates 
completely different kind of challenge for Republicans there than it does in, say, Wake County, North Carolina, another one of the uh, counties that I uh, wrote about, mm-hmm. uh, where growth is the challenge. A tremendous amount of growth from all people coming in from all over the uh, country to live in Wake County, which is the Raleigh, um, Raleigh-Cary area of North Carolina. Right. They had huge population gains over the last decade or something like that. I mean, huge numbers moved in there. Well, really, since... Since the fifties, it's been growing rapidly since the fifties. But they okay. were the they, they were the they were the fastest growing county in America uh, between two thousand two thousand ten. And so, the, it just the, there's a there's a technology boom there. You've got some great universities there. People go there to study, and they love the place, and they just put down roots once they once they're out of college. I'm going to ask you a few questions, setting you up for another question. So I hope you don't mind. But I, I, I find it fascinating that back to Hamilton County, for example, Cincinnati area, that people will vote for one person or another. I mean, you said they had 52 different neighborhoods there. People will vote for one person over the other based on the colors on their campaign signs, based on which kind of chili they like, you know. And and I, I just found that fascinating. I mean, really, does the research go down that far? You know, it's really interesting because when you get into these places, you talk to the folks who live there. And I conducted over 100 interviews to to put this book together. And you just – people love talking about their hometown. They just do. And, and it's it's so fun to talk to people, and they get very enthusiastic about it. Cincinnati, um, the best way to describe the culture in Cincinnati and Hamilton County is by using a word that has negative connotations. And I don't mean it this way, but parochial, meaning basically oh, yeah. meaning basically that they're very focused on – their local communities and the, the expressions of that there are the high school that you went to mm-hmm. and the church that you went to and the chili thing is just fun i mean people pick the chili that they like and they, they sort of like make teams out of this so if you're a skyline person right. or you're a price hill person or you know whatever your chili happens to be that's more for fun but but their, their social identity is really wrapped up in their local neighborhoods, high schools and churches. And uh, and you have to know that. And the, so the, the passage I think you're referring to is when I was talking to Lou Terhar, who's a state representative there. And he said, you know, I put my high school colors on that on that campaign sign, and everybody knows uh, <laughs> then where I'm from because nobody else would dare to use those colors except somebody who went to that school. Ed, i got to take a quick break. Can you hang on to the next segment? I'm Gary Rathbun. It's an economy of one. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. Back to an economy of one with Gary Rathbun. Talking with Ed Morrissey. He's got a great book out called Going Red. It's interesting because I read the chapter on Ohio, and you're talking about different chilies. Then I switch over to, I think it was North Carolina, and we get into the discussion of which barbecue do you like. And I'm thinking, okay. So I remember how much fun the media had with Donald Trump eating a taco in order for Trump to get Hamilton County, does he have to pick the right chili? Does he have to eat the right barbecue in North Carolina? I mean, how much of that is is geared toward optics? Is it all optics or a big portion of it optics like that? Well, what I would say is this. is First off, I think if Trump came to Cincinnati and had any kind of chili whatsoever and he did it the way that Cincinnatians eat it, uh-huh. it wouldn't make any difference 
which person, which which particular chili he went to. Okay. Just that you know he, that he's familiar with it enough to know that you don't just order a bowl of Cincinnati chili, which is what I did. <laughs> and Lou Terhar was the guy who straightened me out. Said, you, you don't eat this in a bowl. You have it, you know, two way, a three way, a four way, or you put it on a cone. He's like, oh, okay. Well, thanks for straightening me out there, Lou. Yeah. <laughs> but, but the point of that is not so much that you're going to make a misstep by eating at Skyline rather than Price Hill, or Price Hill rather than Skyline, or you're, or you're going to make a mistake by going into uh, Wake County and ordering Western North Carolina barbecue versus Eastern North Carolina barbecue. The point is is that you have to get to know these communities in order to contextualize the candidate's message uh, into the lives of the people who live there. And, you know, just simply talking at things at the 30,000-foot level doesn't move people emotionally well enough to lock them in. And that's why the reason why the, the candidate doesn't have to necessarily do all these things, but the campaign does. And they have to have... They have to be listening to people on the ground. They have to understand who it is that they're talking to. And so you can't come into Cincinnati. Let's just use the food analogy for a little bit more. You can't come into Cincinnati and start talking about barbecue. You can't go into Wake County and start talking about chili. Right. Um, it just, you know, people are going to scratch their heads and wonder, you know, uh, you know where you're from. Right. And, so, and so the whole idea here in, in going red is to, is to show people how different each of these communities are and what really moves them and what you have to know about them in order to reach them politically. You have to reach them emotionally before you can reach them politically. You know, and that, that's where I was kind of going with my questions, because here in Toledo, Ohio, Trump is here right now. Right now, he's down the street from the studio. And I, I was betting my producer, I bet he says something about Tony Paco's hot dogs. Because if you're from Toledo, you got to know about Tony Paco's hot dogs or we're not going to listen to you kind of thing. Right, exactly. If you're in Philly, you got to talk about Geno's. You know, yeah. It's, yeah. if you're in New York, you got to talk about Nathan's, right? I mean, yep. some of yeah. that stuff, some of that stuff the candidate can do, but but that's that's just sort of the um superficial mm-hmm. part of that. What what the what the what the key of this is is to just really understand what makes these communities tick, what makes the people in these communities tick and then to and then to contextualize your message, your agenda, so that it answers the questions that are in these people's lives. So it's more than just knowing the food places. It's knowing what the actual issues are in those communities. It's knowing that you can talk about, you know, government regulation being bad, right, mm-hmm. um, on the 30,000-foot level. But if you're in Brown County, Wisconsin, you can talk about how the EPA's regulations and some other regulations have basically um, throttled job creation at the paper mills in, um, in, in, on the fo- all along the Fox River. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can talk about how uh, the EPA, the EPA gets a lot of messages in this book because it's one of the most aggressive regulatory agencies that we've got, right. how the EPA is forcing uh, residents of Cincinnati to pay hundreds of dollars more a year in fees because um, they won't allow the city of Cincinnati to... Um, to uh, use a less expensive reform plan uh, that's going to split the storm drains and the um, and the uh, uh, sewage systems into two separate systems, um, because the city of Cincinnati came up with the, with the less expensive and still just as effective plan too late, um, and they just simply won't reconsider it. Uh, or, or if you're in Colorado, you can talk about what happened on the Animas River when they right. um, when they when they ruined um, that that. Uh, 
uh, berm in the mine and dumped mm-hmm. millions and millions of gallons of toxic water back into the Animas River. I mean, those are the types of things that you have to know about so that when you're talking about regulation is bad and free markets are good, you can actually talk about how it impacts those people in those local communities. Uh, not unlike coal miners in Virginia. And, and coal miners in Virginia is another yeah. great way. Say, hey, yeah. look, you know, the EPA is trying to you know, war on coal. I mean, that's a little bit broader way of, of doing it, but you can actually get down and, and, and find out which mines are operating there, mm-hmm. which ones have had layoffs, what particular issues they've had with government regulators, and you talk about how your agenda is going to reverse those particular things. And Barack Obama, not on coal, obviously, but Barack Obama was very good at being able to do that. How, how did the Republicans really mess up the last couple of elections? Because it really came down to just these counties. And what can be done for the Republicans in this upcoming election? Because we've got a got an election coming up that is unlike any that I've ever voted in. And I've I've voted in, in a lot of them for the last 40 years. What do you see trending, if you will. I mean, you got your finger on the pulse here. Um, what do you what, what do you see happening, and, and do we have the right players in place to to uh, take advantage of this? Well, here's, here's the, the problem in the last two presidential cycles for Republicans, is that they relied on a top-down message, sort of like the, the big message. Um, they did not get on the ground. They did not have a an organization that gave them the feedback from the ground up. Mm-hmm. They didn't understand these communities. And, and I mean, this is, I'm, I'm getting that from the people who actually win elections in these communities. Don't forget, Republicans have done terrific in state legislative right. elections, in Congress. Most of these places, in fact, all of these places have Republicans representing, um, representing these places in the state legislatures and in, the, um, and in Congress. Um, they didn't listen to those people. They didn't bother to find out who those people were. And while I think that Donald Trump has a, uh, a great opportunity to, to cast himself as the kind of pragmatist that all seven of these communities really want to see, some sort of pragmatist, somebody who can get past the red-blue divide and actually get things done. The problem is, is that he's running an even more top-down kind of campaign that's really based on big events and, and, and media messaging, and that's mm-hmm. about it. And I think that that's going to be a tremendous problem when it comes to pushing uh, voters to the polls in November. We've been speaking with Ed Morrissey, author of the new book, Going Red, The Two Million Voters Who Elect the Next President and How Conservatives Can Win Them. Ed, uh, once again, I really appreciate your time. I know know we're a little tight here. Fascinating book. We're going to put it on our website and promote it as much as we can. But uh, if possible, I'd like to uh, tap you on the shoulder again soon and continue the discussion if we can absolutely i would love to do that and thank you so much for all the kind words about the book Uh, excellent i appreciate your time and we'll talk again soon an economy of one with gary rathbun Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Just got done talking with Ed Morrissey. He's got a great book out called Going Red, The Two Million Voters Elect the Next President and How Conservatives Can Win Them. It's a fascinating book because it boils down to those seven counties, and he did interviews in those counties, and it's really interesting 
how people vote and, and what swings them. My conversation with Ed went long. Uh, phones lit up, so I'm going to uh, take a quick call from Ed down in Columbus. Ed, welcome to an economy of one. How you doing? I, not too bad. As in, when I vote for a president, I vote for my wallet because that's what's going to pay for everything. Yeah, and that's an interesting point because people will vote for how they think it will benefit them their family, and their community the most. Yeah, so, you know, I I understand the vote your wallet. It's like voting with your feet. You're going to go where it benefits you the most. So, and I think that's that boils down to essentially a definition of vote your conscience. So I've got a roofing roofing business. I do a delivery route at night. Mm-hmm. So my roofing business has not come back since the bottom fell out of everything. Yeah, we've been getting by on it, but nothing drastic. Yeah. Well, business is an adapting model. That's It's going to be interesting how all this plays out. Appreciate the call, Ed. Interesting. But it's it's common for people to vote with their wallet. One of the things I wanted to ask Ed about, and we just didn't have time, was... uh. North Carolina, we've seen Terry McAuliffe, the governor, uh, decide to personally sign 200,000 waivers to allow felons to vote in that state uh, since the Supreme Court ruled that it was unconstitutional for what he wanted. So he's just going to bypass the Supreme Court ruling. I wanted to see what what his thoughts were on that. And it's in, in looking at these seven counties in the book Going Red, these candidates, they gave me a new appreciation for how chameleon-like they have to be, how knowledgeable they have to be about every stop and every place they're giving a speech and, and talking. Absolutely fascinating, but uh, I was glad we was, was able to, to have him on. Get the book. Get the book. It, it's, it's very fascinating. Anyway, seems to be the week for dropping charges and uh, doing a little research. All the charges were dropped against the pro-life reporters behind the Planned Parenthood videos. Remember those? Remember that? It seems like years ago that that was happening. But uh, it was just earlier this year. And uh, uh, char- now it, it char- uh, I'll, I'll qualify that. The charges against them in Texas have been dropped. California is still deciding whether to file charges against them uh, or not. And, uh, but in Texas, the charges have been dropped against those people that uh, did the behind-the-scenes uh, videos of Planned Parenthood about them selling baby parts and buying a new Ferrari or whatever car uh, it was. Secondly, today I read all the charges against the police officers in Maryland, uh, Baltimore, against Freddie Gray have been dropped. Uh, The first one you came back, uh, you know, was a mistrial or a hung jury, I guess. Uh, The next one, the judge uh, found the the police officer innocent of all uh, allegations. And uh, so the following three... Two of them hadn't been tried uh, at all yet, and the third one was going to be a retrial because of the hung jury. 
the uh, prosecution, which was the state attorney general, uh, came out and said that they have decided to drop all charges uh, against all police officers. And uh, she went on to say, uh, remember that state attorney, uh, Marilyn Mosby, she went on to say that uh, she was not happy doing that. I mean, I'm paraphrasing. And uh, that she wasn't prosecuting police. She was prosecuting uh, police brutality. Okay, so that's kind of a, a sour grapes kind of statement. Anyway, so those charges were dropped. Reagan shooter John Hinckley Jr. was permanently released today or got the uh, order to have himself released, to, to be released from a psychiatric hospital where he's been for 34 years. It's hard to believe it's been that long. 34 years, the attempted assassination of President Reagan. John Hinckley Jr. will be released from the hospital and allowed to live with his mother in Virginia. Now, there's all kinds of conditions on his release. Uh, no drugs, no weapons, no contact with family members. I mean, all, all kinds of can't use the Internet, can't Google himself. Oh, he can use the Internet, but cannot Google himself. <laughs> okay. Uh, but anyway, a week of dropping charges and, and uh, getting police uh, back where they uh should be on the job. John Kerry came out and said that your air conditioner is uh, more dangerous than terrorism. More dangerous. What'd you say? Don't have one. Don't have one. Dan doesn't have an air conditioner. Thought you had a new air conditioner at your place. Uh, I have central terrorism at my house uh, in more ways than one. That's the brilliance of our secretary of state. Carbon-emitting, polluting air conditioners, more dangerous than terrorism. I spent a little time here with a couple of millennials. I know you guys don't like that categorization. I embrace it. Do you? Oh, I'm every bit of a millennial. It's what I'm stuck with. (laughs) (laughs) You know, change is the only evidence of growth, so I'm Mm -hmm. I'm pleased that our conversations off air have have evolved a little bit, and you're thinking a little more critically, and not because you agree with me more, but because you're thinking differently. Right. Critically thinking. Critically thinking. So so that being said, over the last 60 days, uh, Dan, I mean, you were at the Republican National Convention all last week. Yes. So did that convert you to American Socialism or uh, the Green Party or something like no, that? No, I, uh, uh, I know it, we, you just talked about growth, and, and, and I have not – I'll have to play the opposite because I haven't changed my mind. I'm just in a different place now. Whether or not I will for sure vote for Gary Johnson because I am going to vote my conscience mm-hmm. <laughs> um, or if if it would be better to pick a side and choose which I believe would be the lesser of two evils. Well, you know, and, uh, I'll get Dylan's opinion before I address that. But where where are you at as far as kind where of, you were six, 60 days ago or so? Kind of a little bit more than uh, – a little bit more subjective than Dan. I think I've evolved at least like a full Bernie supporter, full on. Once I started figuring out that wasn't going to happen, you know, do you go down the road of, uh, you know, the lesser of two evils, as we've said, or, and you guys know I've been listening to a lot of Carlin lately, do I just <laughs> sit home and just not vote at all? Because you can't say I screwed it up if I didn't vote. Well, so that's kind of where I'm at. You know, I, I got a couple of comments to make. One, uh, I made a comment to someone the other day that I they, they were asking me about 
politics. And I said, you know, this may be the first election since I turned 18 where I don't vote. And uh, I just wanted to see what the reaction was. And and the reaction was classical. Well, if you don't vote, you're not allowed to complain later. No, and no I said, exact opposite. I said, where in the Constitution does the First Amendment on free speech say you have this right if you vote in a presidential election? It doesn't say that. Okay, I, I believe in natural rights, and, and the right of free speech is a natural right. The, the Constitution protects that right from the government. Same way with the Second Amendment. I have a natural right to protect my property by whatever means I deem necessary, and the Second Amendment protects that right from the government. Fourth Amendment, illegal search and seizure. Fifth Amendment, self-incrimination. It protects, those rights protect and preserve those rights. So I'm not, I, I, and I've never been one of those people that says, well, if you don't vote, you can't complain. Sure you can. <laughs> you know? You can't regulate complaining. <laughs> That's right. Yet. <laughs> yet. yet. <laughs> well, actually, you can. You yeah, know. Well. You know, but uh, not from our side. But it doesn't, it, it doesn't give up, you don't give up your, your right to free speech because you don't vote. Okay. One of the things in talking about emotion, um, what it, one of the things I've noticed, and I, I've said this, uh, a couple of times in other contexts, but it seems to me like the emotion on both sides, both sides, uh, is fear. They want you to be afraid of the future. They want you to be afraid for your life. Yeah, that's. Um, I mean, in, in what in what I've heard, you can probably boil both conventions down. One party wants you to fear the outside. The other party wants you to fear the other party. Yeah. Like you can't, you know, we, we can't externally, we're all in trouble. And the other one is we're all in trouble if we let them have their way. Right. And I don't know which is worse, actually. You know, I mean, it's, I mean, do you get that? I mean, Dylan, you're 20 something. Watch, well, be having covering the convention. I definitely got the sense that it was no, and Dan already touched on it. It was no you know, specifics on how we're going to fix things. Mm -hmm. It was all the negative. And now getting into the Democratic side, something that I lead a little bit more towards. It's more empowering the base, you know, talking about change and working for the hard people, but yet still not getting, we're still not getting down to the, to the meat and potatoes of how we fix it. Well, and either and, side. And you've heard me uh, talk a lot. You've listened to a lot of the show right. is it all boils down to you. It's, you know, the economy of one is not just something I made up. It's well thought out in the sense that your future is in your hands. The government is not going to do anything other than get in your way. So the valuation comes down to how little can it be in my way and how can I get around it? You know, right. how, how right. can I not be affected by that? And uh, I, I refuse to be afraid. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. This is our country. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. 